The title this morning's sermon is Retiring the Right Way, Retiring the Right Way. I've received questions at different times as a pastor about retirement and whether it's biblical and what the Bible has to say about it. And so I hope, and we've reached one place in Scripture that probably discusses it more clearly than, than any place else. And so I hope this sermon might go toward answering any questions that you've had about retirement. We were in a series on covetousness and contentment, which we concluded. And now we are returning to Luke's gospel. I want to back up to verse 13 to briefly review and get the context for the parable that we'll be looking at. So in verses 1 through 12, Jesus was teaching on some very heavy topics, uh, being forgiven versus being unforgiven, going to hell versus going to heaven. And then right in the middle of his teaching, look at verse 13 to see what happened. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And this man looks pretty bad. Because he interrupted Jesus and he told Jesus what to do, gave him this command, and Jesus turned this into a teaching moment. Verse 14, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, said to them, plural, because he's saying this to all of those uh, who are present and to us as well, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And if you pause right there. It could look like Jesus didn't help this man. I would say that he did help the man in the greater way. He actually would have hurt the man if he would have given the man the inheritance that he wanted because he would have been feeding his covetousness. Instead, the man wanted help physically or financially, and Jesus helped him uh, spiritually by revealing the sin that was in his heart. Jesus said, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, a strong warning. I'd like to think we took this warning from Jesus very seriously, so seriously we deviated from Luke's gospel for that mini-series on covetousness and contentment. After this warning, Jesus has some really important words which we have not considered before. We will actually only, let me say like this, we've looked at half of verse 15, the first half. This morning we're going to look at the second half of verse 15 because of these very important words which set up the parable we're going to be studying, he said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, which is to say this life is not all about the stuff that we can accumulate. And, or basically, this life is not about the physical. And this brings us to lesson one. Lesson one, this life is about the spiritual versus the physical. This life is about the spiritual versus the physical. Why do you think Jesus preceded these words in the second half of verse 15 about this life not being about the physical or not being about all the possessions we can accumulate with the warning before that? I think it's because it is so tempting for us to think that this life is about the physical or this life is about what we can accumulate it does, or we might be tempted to think that this life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. It's very easy to come to that conclusion. For some people, and you can see it in them, or perhaps even in yourself, you people who get a car, or they get a new house, or they get some new clothes, or something else, and they practically spring to life, it reveals that to them, or to us at times, this life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. Jesus was very clear in other places that this shouldn't be the case. He, the point that he makes here in the second half of verse 15 is a point that he made many other times. Even if I just use Luke's gospel, listen to these other verses. Luke 4.4, 4, Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What, what is that communicating? When Jesus says, don't live by bread alone, what's he saying? He's saying, don't live for what? 
Don't live for the physical. Luke 9, 23. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing, which is to say what? This life is about more than the physical. Luke 9, 25. What is a prophet a man? If he gains the whole world or basically everything that this world offers physically but forfeits his soul or loses the spiritual. And so what does it matter if you could get everything physically that this world offers if it costs you eternal life or you were to lose the spiritual in the process? Luke 12, 33, Jesus said, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus is saying that the spiritual is so important or we should be living so much for the spiritual that we can do what with the physical. It's an exaggeration. He's using hyperbole, but what? Just get rid of it. He's saying the spiritual is so important you can get rid of all of the physical in this life, all of your possessions. That's how little this life consists in the abundance of our possessions is we can get rid of them to store up treasure in heaven. Last one, last verse. Making this point, Romans 14, 17, Paul said, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, which is to say the kingdom of God is not what? It's not physical, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is spiritual. So this life isn't about the physical. This life is about the spiritual. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Spirit. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that this can sound very confusing, even somewhat somewhat perplexing, because we are physical. We live in a physical world. We eat physical food. We have physical bodies. We need rest physically. We get sick physically. Someday we will physically experience death. And so why did Jesus say this? He said this because even though we live in this physical world and everything around us is physical, it is coming to an end. And we always need to be living in light of that reality or living in light of eternity, keeping in mind that all of the physical around us is coming to an end. And so, don't, so his point is, don't be living for that. Be living for the spiritual instead. Live for the next life, not this one. So even the physical we have, so then it begs the question, what does that mean then for the physical that we have? What does it mean for our bodies? What does it mean for our money? What does it mean for our jobs? What does it mean for our homes, our cars, our children, our relationships, our spouses, our friends, our health? All of those things that are physical should still be used for the spiritual or for Christ's kingdom. So we're still to take everything that we have physically in this life and use it for the spiritual, for the next life, for eternity, for Christ's kingdom. To drive this point home, Jesus teaches this parable we're about to look at. And so everything that I just shared is really the foundation for the parable that Jesus teaches that just drives home this point that we're not to live for the physical, we're to live for the spiritual. Because it's about a man, this rich fool, and he did not live for the next life. He lived exclusively or entirely for this life. In other words, he thought only about what? He thought only about the physical. He thought that this life consisted entirely of the abundance of possessions, and he thought nothing about the spiritual or the next life. Take a look with me at verse 16. Jesus told them a parable, saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So his harvest was so great that he basically ran out of room. Considering that his crops are money, it's really like he had what? Yeah, more money than he knew what to do with. I mean, consider having this problem yourself. You know, how would you like to have this problem where you have more, more money than you know what to do with? Well, interestingly, it did end up being a very big problem for him. I think one thing we can take away from this parable is having a lot, whether it's money, whether it's having possessions, kind of like we've talked about over the previous two months, can be very problematic. Sometimes it is one of God's graces that we don't have more in the way of possessions or in the way of wealth because of the problems that come with them. And for this man, his wealth and possessions, his financial success ended up being a huge problem for him. I want to get you to think about something. I'm going to back up a little bit. It's going to relate to this parable. We shouldn't take credit for anything in this life. All that we receive, all that we have, all that we're able to do, every good thing we should see as a gift or as a grace from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And it's a rhetorical question. The idea is we don't have anything that we did not receive or that was not given to us. In other words, we didn't earn it. If you then received it, if you gave it to you and you didn't earn it, why do you boast or why would you be proud as though you did receive it or you did earn it? Even though everything is from God, it's easier to see some things coming from God than others. Let me say that one more time. Even though Scripture tells us everything is given to us by God, comes from his good hand, there are some things that are considerably easier to see coming from God and considerably harder to see coming from God. For example, if you're a student and you work really hard to get a degree, it's going to be tempting to think that you earned that, right? It's going to be a little harder to think that God gave that to you. The same could be said if you work very hard at your job, and then you receive a promotion. It would be tempting to think that you earned it and not recognize that it's a manifestation of God's grace. Or if you practiced often and then you ended up winning a race or you spent many hours learning an instrument and then you become an accomplished musician or perhaps you labor and build your house. It'd be very, and when your house is finished, it'd be very easy to sit back and think of all the hundreds or maybe even thousands of hours you invested in building this house and think that it's a result of your effort instead of giving credit to God. Some other things in life are easier to see coming from God. For example, we dedicated these babies at the beginning of service. Children are something, it's, since we can't create life and because we know there are some people whose major trial is just being unable to have children, it's much easier to look at the children we have and see them as a gift from God or a treasure that he has, has given us. Something else, when and where you're born. We have nothing to do with when we're born. We have nothing to do with where we're born. We have to recognize that that comes from God. We fortunately live in the most, um, I'd say, blessed place and in the blessed, best, blessed, most blessed <laughs> time in history, but we have nothing to do with that. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this in there is that there's another example of something that should be able to be viewed very easily as coming from God in verse 16. 
If you look with me at verse 16, you can see something that most people should be able to look at and see coming from God, not something that any person could produce in their own effort. And what's that? The ground yielding plentifully. A great harvest. When I was going over the sermon with Katie, she shared with me, you probably know her father-in-law, Rick, who's been here many times, is a farmer. He's still a farmer in Northern California, raising alfalfa and wild rice. And Katie shared that when she was growing up, there'd be many times that she would see him standing at the window after he had cut this field of alfalfa, and he's just looking and uh, dreading that clouds are going to come in and rain on this field, and he's going to lose this whole crop. Over the years, there's been times where Jim has asked us for prayer for his crops because he knew that ultimately it's in God's hands. Now, I've never been a farmer, but I know that this is one profession that greatly depends on circumstances that are outside of our control. God is the one who has to provide the rain at the right time, and then he's the one who has to withhold the rain at the right time. He's the one who has to warm the earth. He's the one who has to make the seeds grow. These are things that we can't do in in our best effort. And so you could do all things right as a farmer, but if God does not bless your efforts, then you're not going to experience what this man experiences, which is the ground yielding plentifully. And so considering all that, look at this question that he asked, and it's a very good question. He hasn't gotten to the foolish part yet. He asks a very reasonable question when he says, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? It's a good question, and it also has a number of good answers, a number of wonderful things that he could have said in response to this. For example, since God gave me this great crop, I will be very thankful toward him, and I will express that thankfulness by being generous. I will give back to the Lord. I will give to my local uh, synagogue. I will give to the poor. I will give to widows or orphans. I will use some of what I've been giving to bless and to serve others in response or, or uh, as an outpouring of my thankfulness to God for how much that he has given me. And any number of other good answers he could have given. But instead, look at verse 18. He said, I know what I will do. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So it's pretty obvious that this guy's feeling how about himself. He's he's prideful. He's selfish. He's feeling very, very good about himself. And in verse 20, you get to see how God felt about him. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? He's a covetous man. And right here is the nightmare for a covetous person. If you're covetous, you want everything for yourself. And he just learned that all his stuff is what? going to be going to others. That's the covetous person's nightmare, and this brings us to lesson two. We can be wise in the world's eyes, but fools to God. We can be wise in the world's eyes, but fools to God. 
So we're familiar with this parable. We know that the man is called a fool. I think the title probably in most of your Bibles for this parable is the parable of the rich fool. I want to ask you to be honest about something. Does the man look like a fool? He doesn't look like a fool. You want to say he looks like a fool because God called him a fool, and you want to agree with God, and that's good. But I'm asking you, at least from a worldly or earthly perspective, does he look like a fool? He definitely does not. He looks very sharp. He looks very astute. He's rich. He's a wise farmer. He's a successful businessman. He's able to, I mean, how many people do you know who can accumulate more wealth than they know what to do with? I mean, it's just astonishing how successful this man was, how talented. If you took his story and you made it into a present-day example and, you know, you wrote it out and then let's just say you published it in Forbes or, or some other business magazine like Bloomberg, what would people say about him? They would say he's wise. They would say that this is an example of a tremendous success story, a phenomenal businessman. And so it is ironic that God looks at this man and sees him literally exactly oppositely of the way the world sees him. So I want to make one important point from this parable. Uh, I want to make it very clear. People can look completely wise. They can look completely successful, look completely talented, astute in the world's eyes, And God can look at those same people and say what? Fool. That person is a fool. And I think it's an important thing for us to consider because sometimes when individuals doubt or question Christianity, they'll do so because of the individuals with letters after their names. Although there are also plenty of people with letters after their names who are some of the staunchest and fiercest defenders of Christianity, defenders of God's word, But because there are some um, sharp, in a worldly sense, atheists who criticize God's word, those are the individuals that some people say, well, he's so brilliant. If Christianity was true or the Bible was true, wouldn't he see that? Wouldn't he accept that? And And God would look at this person and he would say he is a fool. Regardless of how many degrees he has or she has, regardless of how much success they've experienced, 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, as the rich fool clearly did when he talks about himself, you can tell how wise he thought he was. Paul says, let him become a fool. In other words, do what the world says is foolish, such as serve the Lord, give away some of your wealth and possessions, that he may become wise. That means wise in God's eyes. So one more time, let, him, let no one deceive himself. If anyone, thinks, if anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may or do something foolish in the world's eyes so that you may become wise in God's eyes for the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
And this rich fool is a good example. He's someone who thought he was pretty crafty. He says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to build bigger barns, I'm going to bring in all this wealth for myself, and God caught him in that craftiness. So since we want to make sure that we look good in God's eyes, since our concern is not how we look to the world, we'll spend the rest of this morning and much of, or maybe all of next week's sermon, considering why this man was a fool so that we don't look like him or resemble him or make some of the same decisions that he did so this same thing wouldn't be said of us. In verse 19, notice that the rich man said, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What is his desire for the rest of his life? If you could just summarize it in one word. Yeah, not hedonism, um, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure. He's congratulating himself on his success. He's going to take it easy. He's going to live selfishly, pursue pleasure. He knows that he has enough crops. This, this uh, harvest had produced so plentifully, he's got enough to last him for the rest of his life without ever having to work again. And this is probably the clearest place in Scripture that discusses what retirement looks like to most of the world, and it's presented very, very poorly. Very, very poorly. This brings us to lesson three. The rich fool retired wrongly. Lesson three, the rich fool retired wrongly. Sadly, these words right here, relax, eat, drink, be merry, capture what comes to mind for many people when they think of retirement. And I get it. I understand where this comes from. You've got people who work very hard for decades. They can't wait to retire and be done working so that they can do this. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But if the pursuit of pleasure is what someone has in mind for their retirement, and that alone, then that puts them in the same category as this, as this man. My hope is to prevent all of us, myself included, from making this mistake. I want to be clear that this lesson, and even this sermon in general, is not a criticism of retiring from a secular possession or profession. Nobody should listen to this sermon and think that it means that you can't retire from a secular profession. I want you to think of retirement the same way we've kind of talked about money recently, that money is amoral. It is not moral, it is not immoral, but what we do with money is moral or immoral. And similarly, retirement is amoral. If God allows you to retire, there's nothing wrong with that. But what you do with your retirement is what? Completely moral. Or, if you're like this man, completely immoral. Just like people can use money or guns or any number of things, morally and immorally, people can use retirement morally and they can use it immorally. And the rich man, he was not a fool for retiring. This is an important point. He was not a fool for retiring. He was a fool for retiring so immorally or retiring wrongly. Before we jump into what it looks like to retire morally or immorally, I want to give you a little history lesson about our country's view of retirement and how we've kind of reached the point that we're at. Because often, if we want to know what not to do, where do you look? (laughs) You look at the world, right? And if you see what the world's doing, it's a pretty good indication to do the opposite of that. 
So how have we taken and twisted and so perverted retirement to get to the point where, for most people, it looks just like this man describes in verse 19? Well, here's a little history lesson. Our country's view of retirement, it actually began as an inappropriate response to social change or social issues. Before the Industrial Revolution, people's jobs could change more easily as they got older. For example, if there was a farmer who was aging, he could take the work and he could pass it along to his sons. They could do the harvesting and so forth, and he'd perform less intensive chores. Or you could have a businessman. He could hire out more of the more difficult work, and he could then act as a mentor or a teacher to those under him. When the Industrial Revolution took place, now there, then there was an obsession with productivity, with economic growth, and there were machines, machine-based jobs, that could do the work of multiple people at a faster pace and at a cheaper price. So if you had to pinpoint just one moment in history when older employees began to be viewed as liabilities, this would be that moment. And I think it's important to understand that the world never has a biblical view of life or of people. And what I mean by that is when we most often think of the world's poor view of human life, we think of abortion, right? But on the very other end of that spectrum, we should appreciate that the world has a very poor view of elderly people in viewing them as being useless. And it's only scripture that's going to applaud the wisdom, the experience that they have. It's the world that's going to try to push them out. And here's where it really started. Elderly people were viewed as liabilities because they couldn't work as quickly as younger people. They might be prone to making more mistakes. And what does that do with production? Production slows down, becomes more expensive. I remember after I got out of the military, I received a job as a middle manager at a distribution center for Target. Worst job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> That's why I don't talk about it very much. I only did it a few months before I could start teaching elementary school. It's the one decision I made in my life based on money, and I hope I never make another decision based on money. They offered me a lot of money because I'd been an officer in the Army, and I thought, well, for that much money, I could do almost anything. No, I couldn't. I hated it. And I remember being interviewed, and they were talking about all of the thousands of dollars that were lost with every uh, injury, workplace injury. And so they asked me, what's more important, productivity or safety? And I thought, this is a trick question. I'll just say yes. And I said yes, and they said, good job. You know, maybe that led led to me being hired. But the point is, injuries, all this costs money. And it started making older employees very unattractive. So in response, corporations started pushing the government to enforce retirement to remove this aging workforce and then to make room for this younger one. A very prominent man in all of this was Dr. William Osler. And Dr. William Osler was an expert in the field of uh, gerontology, which is the study of aging, like kind of related to our word geriatrics. On February 22nd, 1905, he delivered this famous speech that was titled The Fixed Field. And I'm going to read just part of it. Listen to this carefully, please. He said, The effective, moving, vitalizing work of the world 
is done between the ages of 25 and 40 when people are energetic and creative. Workers from age 40 to 60 are tolerable. Workers over age 60 are useless. And then he said people should be forced to retire. And it gets worse. After they're forced to retire, they should have one year to settle their affairs, and then, and I quote, they should be peacefully extinguished by chloroform. And his speech made headlines. There were reports saying Dr. Osler recommends chloroform at 60. And things haven't gotten better. When my dad was in the hospital, they didn't want to keep him alive. That's the truth. I had to meet with the doctors, and I said, okay, well, talk, talk to me about quality of life. What are we looking at? Are you, I had to acknowledge that they wouldn't resuscitate him. And they wanted my permission for that. And I said, okay, well, what, what quality of life are we looking at here? Describe it for me. And they described it, and it was a very reasonable quality of life. Very reasonable. I thought, I mean, even if my dad was bedridden, we could have brought him to church. We could have brought him to our home. We could have done Bible studies with him. We could have sung hymns with him. I was shocked that in this physician's mind, the best thing that should happen should be my dad passing peacefully. And I said, no, do what you can to keep him alive. Well, that wasn't good enough for them. The next thing I know, they call me, and this woman wants to meet with me. And so we go in this little room, and she's sitting across the table. This woman was trained to be empathetic. Trained. Every single motion of hers was to manipulate me. Every facial expression, every word that came out of her mouth, I felt manipulated by her. All of her nods and all of the sympathy that came from her toward me to convince me that I should let my dad die. And I just sat there looking at this woman, and she, she looked so sympathetic and kind, and it was all just to get me to say that dad should die. But for them to let him die, I needed to sign off on that. And I said, no. I said, the, the, the quality of life that you described is very reasonable. He could have many wonderful years ahead of him. And so when... I hear Dr. Osler's speech almost 100 years ago, things are not any better. In fact, as much as medicine has advanced, it's actually regressed because the things that should be used for good aren't being implemented because older people are viewed as useless. My, my confidence in the medical community, and I know we have some wonderful Christians in our church who serve the medical community, and there are many wonderful Christians in the hospitals that we, we frequent. But you need to be aware that there are hospitals, there are individuals in the medical community who have a very, very low regard for God. Very low regard for God's word. They do not have your Christian values in mind, some of them. And so just be careful. I mean, when I sat in there, I thought, this is a dangerous place for older people. This is a dangerous place for infants. What I'd like you to notice is that retirement, it came from a very worldly and somewhat morbid 
view of elderly people. The Great Depression made the situation even worse. Younger men needed jobs to support their family. And so if young men have children and have wives that they need to care for, then who doesn't need to be working to make room for these younger men? Older people. So Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt, he developed Social Security. Workers could pay into a fund that they could draw on once they turn 60, which encourages them to retire and then to leave employment for the younger generation. To convince older people that retirement benefited them and benefited the nation, the government joined with labor interest groups to sell the idea that work should be reserved for the young and old people deserved, deserved is the key word, the self-entitlement, deserve nothing more than to relax. And suddenly retirement becomes an expectation. It's something that people felt and still feel completely entitled to. And since the elderly are viewed as being useless, when they retire, then what? They don't feel led to do anything. They don't feel led to contribute to society. And it's society that has pushed that on them at times or convinced them of that. One time, Katie and I, we were part of this wedding reception that was going to take place at this golf course in this retirement community. We went there early one morning, and one of the rooms off of the restaurant was filled with all of these elderly people, and they just went there every morning to drink their Bloody Marys for breakfast and then to spend the day golfing and socializing. And I thought, what a waste. What a waste of wisdom. What a waste of experience. What a waste of what could contribute to society. And they just gave themselves over to it. All that they had learned that could be passed on to the next generation, and they just filled this room pursuing pleasure and laziness day after day for the rest of their lives. Now, to be clear, God does not forbid retired people, or any people for that matter, from enjoying golf or social functions or other pleasurable pursuits. But what does God forbid? He forbids that from being the primary focus of your life. He forbids a life that is entirely centered on the pursuit of pleasure. It is tragic when older people, especially those who have run the race well, they now have more freedom to serve the Lord than they've ever had before, and they simply squander the time they have left without any thought to the next generation. The Bible never discusses people reaching a point in life when they can stop working and start living selfishly. There's nothing like that in God's word. If you have embraced that view of retirement, you have embraced the world's view of retirement and not scriptures. So what should older people do instead? Or or another way to say it would be, how can older people retire well, not like this foolish man? And as I was studying, I found three answers to this question, three recommendations from scripture. And it just happened that as I was preparing my sermon, I found that each one of these recommendations contains some verses from 1 Timothy 5. So go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 5 with me. We won't turn back to Luke until next week. First Timothy 5, toward the end of the Pauline epistles. And this brings us to lesson four. 
Older people can part one mentor. Lesson four, older people can part one mentor. Still see some, some pages turning. In 1 Timothy 5. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers. Older women encourage as mothers. And then younger women as sisters in all purity. And so consider this. Uh, This is not a true question. But young men are supposed to look up to older men the way that they look up to their what? To their fathers. And so then older men... By extension, should see themselves as fathers to young men. And then young ladies are supposed to look up to older women the way that they would look up to their mothers. And then older women, by extension, would look at younger ladies the way that they would look at their daughters. And this all relates to that view that a church is a family, right? These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are older could be viewed as spiritual parents. You've got Paul, where he says that Timothy is like a spiritual son to him, so older people will view younger people as spiritual children. And the reason, now here's the question. If older people are to see themselves as mothers and fathers, what do mothers and fathers do? They teach, they mentor, they train. The same thing spiritually that we do physically as parents. If you have a child, that's what you do. You teach, you train, you mentor. And the Bible says if you're older, that's the same thing that you do spiritually in the church. We've all heard, you should respect your elders. And according to scripture, that's true. And those verses right there make that clear. And some of the older people, they can listen and they can say, you know, amen, preach it. Younger people need to look up to us and respect us. And I would say, amen, yes, that's true, we do. I just put myself in the category of young people. Maybe I'm not one of the young, because it depends where you're at. You think, well, we need to look up to older people, or I could say we, if younger people look up to me, then maybe I'm an older person to them. But the fact is, we're supposed to respect older people. That is true. But at the same time, there's a responsibility that's put on the shoulders of older people to invest in the younger people. There's an interesting situation I'll share about at Grace Baptist. I was, I think you've told me before, I was a youth pastor there. And there were some very disgruntled older people in the church. They were disgruntled with the younger people. They thought that the younger people were unfriendly and sort of snobbish to them. And perhaps there was some truth to it. And so because I was the youth pastor, and I guess they thought I was in charge of all the youth, they came to me with all these criticisms. And they even talked to me, and it's like, you're youth. You're youth in this church. Don't respect us. And they don't talk to us, and they just walk past us, and they're unfriendly. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm ashamed of that. Let me go talk to them. So I was going to go talk to the youth, and I don't know if I'd say, you know, chew them out, but I'm trying to, I'm going to rebuke them and say, hey, you guys need to be friendlier to the older people in the church. Well, when I talked to the young people, guess what they said? They said, we're intimidated. They don't look friendly. (laughs) We're we're afraid to talk to them. And I thought, I kind of see that. And so my point is there's responsibility on both sides. I'm a huge fan of cross-generational ministry and church family. I like to see old and young together. And I I think it is a bad thing to start splitting up 
dividing, segregating, and taking away the older people with all of their wisdom and experience and removing the young people from them. I love home fellowships that have people of all ages there. I love ministry events that have people of all ages there. I think it's literally one of the worst things that can happen when you start pulling everyone apart and saying everyone of this age together, everyone of this age together. It's definitely unbiblical. If you can come and show me someplace in Scripture, then you'll change my mind. But I don't think you're going to find anything. One of, the, one of the most important things young people need is older people and the wisdom and the experience that they offer. So don't pull them apart. What does the Bible say about young people? Don't take this personally if you're a young person. You're foolish. So you're going to take a bunch of young people and put them all together. That doesn't make sense to me. Keep people together, cross-generational ministry, but everyone needs to keep in mind so when older people are saying, well, the young people aren't friendly, the young people look at you and think you're not friendly. So everyone needs to reach out, invest, take time to talk to. And I did, I did see where the young people were coming from when they said that. They said, we're really intimidated. We're nervous to try to talk to them. They look like they, they, look like they don't want to talk to me. They look like they want me to just scamper and get away from them because they look so, so sour. Okay, listen to this verse that makes this very clear. Psalm 71, 18. Even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. This verse reveals the desire that godly elderly people should have telling the younger generation about the Lord, mentoring, instructing younger people is one of the primary ministries of older people. Let me read the verse one more time. The psalmist says, even to old age and gray hairs, God, do not forsake me or do not let me die until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. One commentator said, often it is the senior saints who after a lifetime of walking with God are able to convey the truths of God's word by revealing or relating how God has worked in their lives. If you've been a Christian for a few years, let's say three to five years, there's a lot of experiences you've had with the Lord in that time. But now imagine the experience of someone who's walked with the Lord for 30 or 50 years. Can you imagine all of the wisdom and all of the experiences that they've had that they could pass along? And if you're an older person, you're saying, boy, I'd love to share those things. Go to home fellowships. Be around. You can't expect young people to chase you down. Make sure that you're around. Make sure that you're available. The next thing that older people can do, older people can part two pray. Older people can part two pray. Generations of people have been impacted by the faithful prayers of elderly people. Prayer is perhaps the most fruitful ministry outlet for those who have retired or have an amount of time available to them. Look at verse 3. 1 Timothy 5, 3. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And this is the important verse, verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
So Paul says widows who have outlived their husbands can then commit themselves to prayer. Who's the, who's the premier example of this in Scripture? The woman who had lost her husband, become a widow, and just committed herself to prayer and fasting. Anna the prophetess. Luke 2.36, Anna's advanced in years, having outlived her husband, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. It sounds like, I don't know how literal this is, she lived at the temple daily, nightly, fasting and praying. That's what she did with the remaining time. I mean, consider the contrast of that godly woman with those elderly people that we saw in that retirement community. The alternative to serving the Lord is what the rich fool did, which is serving ourselves. And the next verse describes how God views this. This is a very sobering verse. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 6. Paul says, She who is self-indulgent, or, or she who lives for pleasure, as it's translated in some Bibles, like the rich fool wanted to do, is dead even while she lives. Why would Paul say this? And there's two possibilities. Commentators seem to be divided about this, or it could be both. One possibility is it's as though she's already dead. She's doing nothing for the Lord. She's just living for pleasure. And so it's almost like God says, since she's not serving me, she might as well be dead. And the other possibility is she actually is dead, not physically, but what? Spiritually, to be living this selfishly with no thought to the Lord in all of the years that he has given this woman is to be an unsaved person, which could be why he says that she's, she's dead. And I know this is about widows, but I don't think it's a stretch to say if this is how God views widows who live for pleasure, then this is probably how God views everyone who lives for pleasure. I'm not sure why widows would be viewed harsher than anyone else. So I think the verse can stand as a rebuke to anyone who just wakes up each day thinking about only about themselves and what they want. The final thing that older people can do, lesson four, older people can part three, assist. Older people can part three, assist. Look at verse nine. It says, let a widow be un- enrolled. This means supported by the church. If she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So Paul said the older women could be supported by the church or receive somewhat something like a pension from the church if they meet the three requirements that are listed in these verses. One requirement is they have no family to support them. That's what I read in verses four and five. And I want to go back and reread it. But the point of verses four and five is a widow is to be supported by the church if that widow doesn't have any family to support her or him. Second, they have to be at least 60. And then third, they have to serve the Lord and other believers. And so these verses, they reveal not just the possibility of older people serving the Lord, but really the expectation that they will do so. So God doesn't, he doesn't prohibit older people from receiving a pension from the church, but he says that if they're going to live off the church, these other requirements must be met. Why don't you look at one more place in scripture? Turn to Numbers 8. Turn to Numbers 8. The Bible always does things better than 
the world. And in Numbers 8, we get to see what retirement looked like in one profession. That was the priesthood or the Levites. This is a phenomenal example of what retirement should look like. You know how the Bible, the world has welfare, and then the Bible does welfare much better. Remember, you see it with Ruth, right? Where Ruth goes out to the field, the gleanings are left for her. I mean, how much better does the Bible's uh, welfare system look than the world's welfare system? I mean, it's like night and day. Well, similarly, the Bible's retirement system looks exponentially better than what the world says retirement should look like. Look at verse 23, Numbers 8, 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites who served in the temple. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw, or they should retire, from the duty of the service, and they shall serve no more. So they start working in the temple when they're 25, they reach 50 and they retire from this regular service because of the physical demands. I think being a temple worker was very uh, strenuous, and then that strenuous work could be given to younger people. And so then you say, okay, well, this sounds like they retire and they don't do anything. No, that's definitely not the case. Look at verse 26. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard but they shall do no service. Now, I didn't think of something here. In this verse, when it's, notice it says keeping guard. If you write in your Bible, you can circle keeping guard, draw a little line out and write Jack Wilson. <laughs> because Jack Wilson was the man who was keeping guard of his church last week. And he quickly stopped that shooter before he could murder who knows how many other people. And so I kind of joked with Katie, I guess if you're older, one way you can serve is you can guard your church. We just hope you have good eyesight and your hand is steady. But that's what this man did in his older years was he guarded his church like this. And then he protected or saved who knows how many lives. I like the ESV, but I don't like the way that it words this verse. Listen to how it's worded in some other translations. The NIV and the NASB, it says, they may assist their brothers in performing their duties. The NLT says, after retirement, they may assist their fellow Levites by serving as guards at the tabernacle. So when the older Levites retired, they assisted the younger Levites, but they never stopped working completely, or they never started just living entirely for themselves. They continued to serve, but in a way that was appropriate for their age. It'd be impossible to provide an exhaustive list of all the different ways that retired people could assist or help, but I would say this. If you're an older person and you want to help or assist it should not be that difficult to find ways. In our, like in our family, one example, my mom takes one of our kids for reading every weekday. Older men can help younger men with different trades or skills that they want to learn. There's bringing meals, there's sending cards, there's volunteering to lead ministries. When we, see, when we have the ladies' planning meeting, I don't know if it's just because we have so many younger families here that it looks like it's a lot of young mothers But I don't think that the load for ministry in this church should rest on the shoulders of mothers who have a bunch of young children. It should, they can contribute, and and many of them do. I mean, sometimes I look at the meal schedule and I see the number of people who are bringing meals, and a lot of times it's the younger mothers 
who are already preparing lots of meals for their own families. And so I would just say, if you're older and you have the time, then consider how you can serve. And part of that serving is just lightening some of that load that's on the shoulders of these younger mothers who are already so overwhelmed with their own homes and their own children. We have good examples in our church. I'll mention just one of them because they're not here to stop me. (laughs) And that's Keith and Sandy Bjorkman. You might not know this, but when they came into this church, I would clone them. I mean, they could, their, their desire was like, we want to get involved, we just want to serve. And they did. From the moment that they walked through those doors until the last Sunday we could have them there, Keith and Sandy Borkman just week after week, month after month, were blessings to this church. I mean, it was really, really fantastic to, to have them here. They were a very good example of this in their older years, using the time and energy that they had to serve and bless others. Now, if you take your minds back to the rich fool's words one more time, he said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And Christians shouldn't say that. Christians just should not say that. If you're retired, this parable should not cause you to feel bad about your retirement, but it should cause you to ask how you are using your retirement. You should ask, how am I retiring? Am I retiring the right way or am I retiring the wrong way? And one reason this is so important is because Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much is required. So if God has allowed you to retire, then all he's really done I mean, besides bless you, is give you more time for what? Serving him. Serving him. That's what he's done. If you get to retire from a secular profession, you should retire into Christian service. Let me say that one more time. If God allows you to retire from a secular profession, then you should retire into Christian service. Ask yourself, am I being a good steward of the blessing that God has given me? And I want to conclude with this. We might retire from secular professions, but we never retire from what? Being Christians, serving Christ, God changes the address of our workplace. He changes our role, but he doesn't change the need for us to serve him or the call on our lives to serve him. As we get older, the way we serve changes. We might slow down. We might not have as much strength. We might not have as much energy, but we should still be committed to using the strength and energy that God's given us for his glory. Consider this quote from John Piper. He said, finishing life to the glory of Christ means resolutely resisting the typical American dream of retirement. It means being so satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in Christ that we are set free from the cravings that create so much emptiness and uselessness in retirement. Instead, knowing that we have an infinitely satisfying and everlasting inheritance in God just over the horizon of life makes us zealous in our last few remaining years here to spend ourselves in the sacrifices of love, not the accumulation of comforts. So retiring for the glory of Christ, I know it doesn't happen naturally. Our flesh wants to pull us toward pleasure, but the power of the gospel working in our hearts allows us to 
enables us to be able to finish this race well. Father, we thank you for the privilege of serving your son. We thank you for saving us. And I pray for each of us that we would use the time that you have given us for Christ's glory, that we would be good stewards of the, the days, the months, the hours, the years that you have given us. I think especially about um, older people, those who have retired or those approaching retirement. Give them wisdom regarding how you would have them spend the time and the energy that you've given them. And, and the rest of us, as we're growing up, I pray that, and as we get older and look toward retirement ourselves, Lord, I pray that we would be good stewards of the seasons that you've put us in. We do thank you for the strength, for the energy, for the health that you have given us. We know that this life is short, and we want it to be used for Christ's glory and for his kingdom. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.